They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are monsters out of the closet. I'm Nicole. And I'm Shreya. From traditional legends of the Fae to stories of urban magic, fairy tales have always shared macabre and magical lessons, warning us of the dangers lurking in the dark. This month, we build on this history with two original fairy tales, ones that offer our protagonists happier endings. In our first tale, a young child lives a charmed life by the sea, but dark undercurrents threaten to destroy their idyllic life. Beneath the Surface was written by Liesl Matska and features performances by Robin Tynan in the role of Lex, Christine Nguyen as Hamako, Abigail Burkett as S, and Ari Ryder as Papa. Hamako told me once, Sometimes danger comes where you least expect it as she dragged me away from the tidal pools. I had cajoled her into taking me on yet another trip to the beach near our house, which meant for her it was yet another morning of trying to keep me safe. You have to remember to be careful. I'll be careful of you, I squealed, running down the shore, giggling at the wet-sounding footsteps of Hamako scrambling to race after me. To my five-year-old mind, there was nothing in the world less scary than Hamako. She was so short, she couldn't even get the peanut butter down from the cabinet without using the step stool. She must have been clumsy, because her arms were constantly covered in rows of blue-ringed bruises that never seemed to heal, and then she was always the one Papa would yell at when something went wrong. Lex! she shouted. I risked a glance behind me. She was gaining ground. Come on, you know you need to stay with me. Fine, I whined, sliding to a halt. I crossed my arms and humphed loudly so she would know I was mad. Hamako sighed. <sighs> Come on, Lex, you know your father is going to kill me if you get yourself hurt again. I humphed again, determinedly staring at the other people on the beach instead of at Hamako. There were the usual families spending a day on the beach with a bunch of toys the people who had decided to visit last minute in their long pants, and one very, very strange lady. She was different from anyone I had ever seen before. She was tall, taller than Papa even, with patches of light streaked through her dark skin. She stood, feet just barely in the water, staring right at me. Uh, Hamako? I asked, anger forgotten. Why is that lady looking at me? What lady? Hamako came over to stand next to me, looking out over the beach. The stripy lady. I tried to point at her, but I couldn't find her when I looked again. She disappeared. Hamako looked at me and frowned. The stripy lady. She repeated slowly. Yeah, she's got stripes... Like a zebra? I explained, equally slowly. Hamako nodded, ruffling my hair. 
Right. Maybe it's time to go home for a nap. I tried whining again, but Hamako insisted and steered me toward home. After we had crossed the big street, Hamako let go of my hand and crouched down next to me. Hey, I bet you can't run to that tree and back before I pass the mailbox. I immediately took off running. I was definitely faster than Hamako. Tagging the tree, I turned around and froze. The stripy lady was standing on the beach, watching me again. She caught my eye and grinned with teeth that were too pointy before turning and walking away. Zebra had been the wrong animal to compare her to. Zebras only ate plants, and the lady looked like she wanted to eat me. Everything okay, Lex? Hamako had caught up to me. She turned to see what I was looking at, but the lady was already gone. The stripy lady was back, I tried to explain. The stripy lady from the beach? Hamako looked around again. Is she the same person who broke into the house last week, stole cookies out of the pantry, and left without taking anything else? No, this one is real, I protested, grabbing Hamako's hand. She's kind of scary. She's got shark teeth, and she keeps staring at me. But every time you look, she's gone. Hamako squeezed my hand as we started walking back home. Maybe she's scared of me. Guess you're just going to have to stick with me then. I stayed by Hamako for the rest of the day, but everything stayed normal. We cooked dinner, Papa came home and yelled at Hamako, and we watched cartoons before Hamako took me in. I thought about telling Papa about the stripy lady, but he disappeared into his room before we finished dinner and I was not supposed to bother him when his door was closed. Besides, monsters weren't allowed inside the house. Hamako had told me that. I stuck to her the next morning too, but when the lady didn't come back, I thought it would be okay to stay and play in the sand while Hamako got us something for lunch. The snack hut wasn't far, and I could see her the entire time she was away. I thought I was safe. That's a nice castle you've got there. It's a museum. I looked up to find the stripy lady playing with her bracelet, a thin ring of black and white stripes that looked like it was made of snakeskin. She twisted it back and forth. I looked over to where Hamako was standing in line and tried to put on my brave face. I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. And you don't work at the supermarket, so you're not a stranger I'm allowed to talk to. How about this, then? I'm S. She sat down next to me, close enough that her knee almost destroyed the garden of my museum. Who's that woman that's always with you? That's... Hamako, I told her, focused on my museum. If I didn't look at her face, I couldn't see her shark teeth, and I wouldn't get scared. And Hamako is your... That made me stop. I knew Hamako was not family, not like Nana was, and even though I wanted her to be my big sister, I knew she wasn't. She and Papa definitely weren't friends because friends didn't treat each other the way Papa treated Hamako. She wasn't my babysitter because babysitters always left and Hamako always stayed. She was my Hamako, that was it. I don't know, I told S. She twisted her bracelet around her wrist, looking thoughtful. 
Has Sumako taken care of you for the past couple of years? I nodded. Hamako had helped me decorate my birthday cake when I turned four. It had been beach-themed, and the crushed graham crackers we used for sand had been all over the kitchen floor for days after, no matter how many times Hamako had swept. For my fifth birthday, she had surprised me with a cake that she had decorated in the shape of a fish. And she's not your mom. I would know if she had family out here. But she's stayed here for years and taken care of you. She suddenly leaned down, her face almost touching mine, grinning with those oddly pointed teeth. Are you what's keeping her here, little one? I tried to scoot back. I did not want to be talking to S anymore. She kept moving closer every time I tried to get away. Hamako doesn't belong here with you, she said, something wild in her eyes. She belongs with me, and I would do almost anything for her to come home. Can I help you? S drew back. I turned around to find Hamako standing behind me, hands on her hips. She took one look at the lady and froze, mouth open. She looked surprised, probably to find out the lady was real after all. Hi there. Long time no see. That seemed to shake Hamako from her thoughts. She jerked back and grabbed me by the shoulder. She turned me around and started hurrying us away. Come on, Lex. We need to go home. But... The lady looked at us, hurt and confused. Now! Hamako snapped. She forcibly guided me away with her death grip on my shoulder. When we were a block away from the beach, she finally let go, reaching for my hand to cross the street. I yanked it out of her grasp, walking sullenly next to her. We walked in silence all the way back until we were home, standing on the porch. Hey, she said softly, kneeling down. I'm sorry I yelled. I got scared and I got carried away. That was wrong of me. S scared you? I asked, turning away from her so she would know I was still mad at her. Hamako had scolded me before, but she had never yelled. Not like that. I wasn't completely ready to forgive her yet, but my curiosity was stronger. Hamako nodded. She's someone I knew from a long time ago, before I came to stay with you. I never expected to see her again. She bit her lip. If you see her again, I want you to stay away from her, okay? Okay. I muttered. And do you think maybe we could keep the fact that we saw her today a secret from your father? You know how he... worries. I hated that. Hamako always looked so angry when Papa screamed, but she would just tell him he was right and do it his way. She tried to pretend she was okay after, but I knew it made her upset. I nodded. Thank you, Lex. She stood up suddenly, quickly opening the door. You know, on the bright side, since we're home early, we could watch some cartoons before dinner. The television was a very big offer. I was only allowed to watch two shows in a day. Immediately, Hamako was forgiven, and I let the topic of the beach lady drop. When Papa came home that evening, and I told him all the fun things I did, I did not bring up the lady from the beach. Instead, I told him all about the fish I saw in the tidal pools, and the seaweed that had washed up on shore that Hamako had not let me play with. 
and then how we had gotten burgers for lunch, and I had eaten all the lettuce that had come with mine, without Hamako telling me to. I saw Hamako smile, relieved when she finally took me upstairs at the end of the night to get ready for bed. S didn't show up again, but I was still nervous. S wanted to take Hamako, and I didn't want Hamako to disappear like Mama had. Somebody needed to protect Hamako from S. I waited until all the lights were off and Hamako had gone to bed before I tiptoed into Papa's room. He put his book down when I pushed open the door. Lex? You should be in bed. Go get Hamako to tuck you in. No, I cried without thinking, interrupting him. I clapped my hands over my mouth. Sorry, Papa. Why? What's wrong? Is Hamako hurting you? I waited until he was done before shaking my head. He gestured for me to talk, and I told him the whole story about S, about seeing her on the beach and how she scared Hamako, and how she scared me, and how most importantly about how she had said she was going to take Hamako away. Papa just laughed. <laughs> Don't worry, Lex. Hamako's not going anywhere. I've made sure of that. And as long as she's around, nothing is going to harm you. Now go back to bed. But Papa, I tried. He hadn't seen S and the desperation in her face when she had talked about Hamako. No buts, Lex. He snapped, then sighed. He pulled open his nightstand drawer and pulled out a necklace I had never seen before. It had a small yellow circle pendant with blue and black spots that looked like a tentacle curled up around itself. I reached out to touch it, but Papa pulled it out of my grasp. This is a magic necklace, Papa said, holding it up. As long as I have it, we're safe, okay? We're safe, and Hamako is not leaving. He put it back in the drawer and stood up. Hand on my shoulder, he marched me back to my room. Now go back to bed. I need to have a word with Hamako. Something about the coldness in his tone made me dare to disobey him. At least to see what kind of trouble I had gotten Hamako into. I waited until he walked past my room, and then I crept after him. Lex was just telling me an interesting story, I heard Papa say, about a woman you two met recently. I thought I told you that you weren't to talk to anyone from your old life. I didn't talk to her, Hamako mumbled. She was looking for me. She just showed up on her own. Well, then maybe she wants to stay out here with us permanently, Papa said. I shook my head angrily, trying to tell Papa had been a mistake. Papa was messing everything up. S was scary. She scared Hamako. She needed to be as far away from us as possible, not staying with us. Maybe Papa was trying to punish Hamako for S being around. I'm sure it would be easy, especially since you won't warn her in advance, will you? Not if I tell you that you can't. Please. Hamako never begged, so hearing it just felt wrong. She sounded so tired. I'll make her leave, just please don't. Tell me how much you love living here. I love it here. Again! I love living here. Very good. I'm sure you can tell your friend all about it when she starts living here. I'll bet she's as careless with her belongings as you are. I heard something that sounded disturbingly like Hamako crying. I wanted to give her a hug, but I had to race into my room so that Papa wouldn't see me and punish me too. I meant to apologize to Hamako, 
But when I came downstairs in the morning, she was staring out the kitchen window. With such a sad look on her face, I had to give her a hug. I'm okay, she muttered into my hair. She let go and turned to look out the window again. I looked too, just in time to see S duck out of view. Immediately I was angry. Of course Hamaka was sad. She must have felt so scared, like nothing could keep her safe. Something occurred to me. I raced upstairs into Papa's room. I wasn't supposed to go in there, but this was an emergency. After a few moments of digging, I turned around to Hamako, who had followed me with a confused expression. Here! I held out Papa's necklace to her. Papa says it keeps us safe, so maybe if you put it on, it will keep you safe. Hamako hesitantly reached for it. Lex, she asked quietly. Are you giving this to me? Yeah, I said. We just can't let Papa see that we have it. Hamako ripped the necklace out of my hand before I could even finish. She slipped the necklace over her head, and then it was my turn to run after Hamako as she raced out of the house. I ran out the door to find her hugging S, feet dangling off the ground as the two clung to each other. He took it and I couldn't... I heard Hamako saying. I couldn't tell whether she was laughing or crying or both. Hamako? I asked quietly. I couldn't understand. Was the necklace that powerful that Hamako felt okay hugging S when she had been hiding just a few minutes ago? Hamako motioned for S to put her down and turned towards me. Lex, this is my girlfriend. I took a step backwards. But she's the scary lady, I protested. I may have gotten a bit out of control, S admitted with a sheepish grin. Hamako raised an eyebrow. And I should apologize, S added quickly, because that was wrong of me. I'm sorry, little one. I took another step back, still not convinced. Hamako knelt down next to me and took my hand. She's not going to hurt you, Hamako promised. My glance flickered to the tentacle necklace around her neck. I trusted Hamako. Okay, I said. S stayed with us for the rest of the day. She and Hamako were never far apart. When we inevitably ended up at the beach, Hamako and S stayed on the shore, Hamako wrapping her arms around S as they watched me run around in the water. We stayed out all day until it was getting to be dinner time. I thought Hamako was going to make us go home, but she shook her head. You can stay here for a little longer, she told me. I've got to run back to the house for a second. There's something I have to do. I can do it. S offered something dark in her eyes. No, Hamako said. This is something I have to do. She left S to watch me. When she eventually returned, she was out of breath and grinning. Lex, she said, grabbing S's hand. I have to go. There's some people I want you to talk to, okay? Stay safe. She pointed down the shore, where a couple of police officers were making their way towards us. I turned around to ask Hamako if those were the people she was talking about, but when I did, both she and S were gone. Looking back, my life changed that night, in some ways for the better. That night, in addition to losing Hamako, 
I also lost Papa. The police officers tried to explain, visibly uncomfortable, that something had happened and Papa wasn't well. Later, I would find out that he had died of natural causes, according to the coroner. The original report had considered poisoning, as he had been found in a pool of his own vomit. But a toxicology screen had been negative, and his body wasn't found under any suspicious circumstances, other than a small bite mark on his arm that the coroner later ruled as unimportant. The police had wanted to question Hamako, as she had made the 911 call after finding the body at home but she was nowhere to be found. I never saw Hamako again. I went to live with Nana in the middle of the country, far from the ocean. It would be many years before I would return. I walked along the rocks, splashing in the tidal pools like I had done in my youth. I half expected Hamako to appear out of nowhere, telling me to come down from there and that it wasn't safe. All I saw was the wildlife, the fish, the crabs, and a small snake and blue-spotted octopus swimming away together. Our next fairy tale takes place in a realm of danger and deception where a princess must face the dark unknown or risk suffering a more grievous duty. No Place for Deals was written and performed by Nicole Penrod, playing the narrator and Marisol, with Shriya Venkintesh as Paloma. The trip sometimes took days, other times weeks. The Feywild was, as everyone knew, a dangerous place, and Marisol was intimately familiar with its darkest corners. A roll here, a duck there. She could slip into any space as quietly as a heartbeat. Marisol could not use landmarks to guide her in her travels, nor the patterns of the sun, but she could use the sense of the land that rested within all Fey. And as a royal, this was especially true of land within her family's domain. On the rather frequent occasions upon which she was asked to travel away from the order of the castle, she maintained relationships and brokered deals with some of the seedier citizens of the kingdom. Unfortunately, including the unsettling older couple that lived alone at the edge of the forest. The couple, an immortal soul that had been cleaved in two by an angry god centuries prior, smiled at her. Have you brought us what we asked? Their voices seemed to twist over each other, a hum beneath like a pit of snakes. Marisol's answering expression must have been more snarl than sweet. Of course, she told them, and let it roll from her tongue like syrup. They made the exchange, three fingernail-sized emeralds for a canine tooth off a direwolf, and Marisol left without saying goodbye. She was not worried about making a good impression on people, and it made it easier to deal in the work she did. Princesses of the Fae were held to a certain standard in this role, half ambassador and half street urchin, and above all else they needed to be efficient. As such, her clients did not need her to be nice. They only needed her to be good at this part of her job, and she was. 
When she returned, Paloma was waiting atop the castle wall. She was a vision in white, all dark skin and knowing eyes, elegant hands and long pointed nails. When Paloma grinned, it was sharp, all teeth. She was angular even for a fey creature and Marisol resented her for it. But even resentment was sweeter than the numb monotony of echoing ballrooms and the unremarkable suitors as Marisol's parents tried to marry her off to the highest bidder. Murmurings in the kingdom claimed that the royals might want anything from rare jewels to blood sacrifice. And of course, in the Feywild, any bid was fair game. She found Paloma waiting for her above the east wing. Hello, princess. Marisol rolled her eyes. Hello, songbird. The breeze rustled the branches nearby, leaves scraping over each other in an evening symphony. Paloma just laughed and laughed from her perch on the lower wall. <laughs> Come up here. Or are you too old for that now? Never too old. Old, after all, meant nothing in this place. Marisol rolled up her sleeves and began to climb up the offset bricks, the indentations now worn nearly smooth with use. What did you see today? she asked. Paloma turned to her, snow-blind eyes landing impossibly upon her gaze as they always did, and tilted her head like a challenge. What will you give me for it? This is no place for deals. This is exactly the place for deals. Marisol sighed, swiping some of her dark hair from her face. Paloma, what are they asking for your hand? Faye could not lie, but they could bend the truth. You, you couldn't, couldn't afford me. me. Another smile, this one as sharp as the one before. I saw a wall, princess. Tell me of it. Paloma's head tilted. I can name a price, if you'd like. Marisol sighed, scooting over until their thighs touched. Tell me, she repeated, which was not a no. Paloma's expression lit up like she knew she'd won. In a moment, she said, and then leaned in for a kiss. They collided like a tidal wave in the dead of night, less beauty and more undertow. Marisol felt static dance in the tips of her hair, felt her tongue start to go numb. After everything, she should have suspected that their first kiss would send her spinning into shadowed technicolor. If I've sold my soul away, Marisol thought dizzily, weaving a hand through Paloma's hair and drawing her closer, closer still. At least it was to her. In the morning, Marisol reported to the royal court with a bruise at her throat and hands clenched into fists. There's a wall, she said, and her own voice sounded strange to her. Just beyond the eastern edge of the forest. It's approaching rapidly, consuming everything in its path. How do you know this? She imagined the king asking, but he never wanted to know where she had been or how she had gotten there. Instead, he inclined his head, light glinting from his obsidian crown, and looked Marisol in the eyes. Would you find it for me? He asked his daughter. Marisol squared her shoulders and summoned her courage. It would be harrowing to get up close to this abomination, but it might be harder, she thought, to bring herself to come back. I will return by the day of the Solstice Festival, she said, counting the days in her head. Fourteen, give or take, but time was unreliable here. Her father nodded and sent her away. Her feet slapped against wet earth. Her breath came hot, frantic, determined, desperate. Sweat beaded at her hairline and ran down her face in thin rivulets. 
Marisol's entire world narrowed to an awareness of her own body as she fled like a prey animal. There was something behind her, and it was not a something she knew. Her mother, and the tradition of the women in Marisol's family, would have turned and pinioned the shadow creature on a sword forged from marble. But Marisol had always preferred a dagger, liked getting up close and personal with her kills before she finished them off. She fought as she worked, like a ragged commoner. If a target's blood ran hot down her wrist, good. If its last gasping breath went ragged across the thin skin of her sharp cheeks, all the better. She curved left in a wide arc, it had been just a few hours since she crossed the eastern border out of the kingdom, which was marked less by an active delineation and more a feeling. The woods seemed to know it, too. No longer did the breeze guide her feet. No longer did the rot in the forest floor lead her to hidden treasure troves. As Marisol slowed down to listen to the absent whisper of the trees, a hulking mass of shadow and bone slammed into her side, crushing the air from her lungs and driving her to the ground. Her trust of this place had been a costly mistake, she thought, as she was pinned face up, thick black claws digging into the meat of her shoulder. Her right wrist was forced down and her legs were immobilized by the sheer size of this thing. It must have thought she was helpless enough to mock, because it paused and grinned down at her, black smoke kissing the bridge of her nose. But this monster had made a mistake, too. Marisol thrust upward with her free left hand, fingers curled tightly around her knife, reached into the heart of the creature and twisted. It shrieked, dripping cold, stinking blood onto her body before collapsing to the side. In death, it was a pathetic husk, pitiful rather than scary, and Marisol didn't spare it a second glance as she picked herself up and carried on. Whatever forces worked against her would have to try harder to keep her from her quest. The Wall of Shadows was not a metaphor, not that Marisol had been expecting it to be. Paloma's information was only ever bad when she thought it might be funnier that way. But this was no joke. Coils of smoke wove through and around each other, towering over her. It was like gazing into a void. Marisol could not see its end, the wall stretching impossibly high and wide. All around her, the arid landscape was leached of life, of color. It had taken her the better part of seven days to get here, and every bit of her ached, but that was nothing compared to the cold dread that settled within her as she faced the massive, slowly advancing force of darkness. I told you it was dangerous, whistled a songbird. Marisol whirled around, a dagger raised to protect her chest out of sheer instinct. It glinted in the pale sunlight, and the glare had Marisol squinting until she could make out the shape of the girl across from her. What are you doing here? I thought you might need help, said Paloma. And, impossibly, it was a lie, but at least it was a sweet one. What are you? Marisol wondered, not for the first time. But the wondering was absent, distracted. No answers would come of it, not here. And I wanted to see it up close. Paloma continued. Her opaque eyes widened as she took it in. Beautiful, don't you think? There was something alluring about it, Marisol could admit, and that just made her distrust it more. But her distrust did not stop her from taking another step toward the wall. And then another. Paloma joined her, and the two of them stood less than a stone's throw from the void. What, what do, do you, you think, think it is? is? Asked Marisol. Where, Where did it come from? Paloma shrugged. Those are awfully mundane questions. I have a duty to my people. 
The words tasted like dust in her mouth, a script that had crumbled from overuse. Paloma didn't say anything, and so Marisol dropped the act. There was no one else around. Out here, she was nothing more than a fay with messy hair and quick hands. I'm just curious. I peddle in dangerous items, but nothing like this. You're thinking too small. Paloma paused, taking a few steps to the left, parallel to the wall. Her step was so light she practically floated. What's on the other side? Now that's a question. Marisol could not stop thinking about how it had felt to kiss Paloma. Death? It was not a frightening concept. Marisol grew up in the high courts of the Feywild, where a wrong look could lead to execution. The nursery rhymes she learned in her youth sang of dismemberment and disease. The Fey knew that they had been born to die. And yet, the longer she stared into the darkness, the more sure she was that something was staring back out at her. Maybe. Paloma mused, though she sounded unconvinced. Or maybe it's something else. How brave are you, princess? Marisol had killed people for jewels, had met the most amoral denizens of a dangerous kingdom, had traveled for days through the gloom of the Feywild on her own two feet to witness this. She looked into the darkness and did not flinch. I don't know, she said, and it was startlingly truthful even for a Fey. Paloma smiled as she held out her hand. Her expression was colored by a vicious, fanged pleasure. Would you like to find out? In her travels in the woods and beyond, Marisol had learned that her instinct would never be as good as that of the animals around her. The forest knew when danger was about, when to flee and when to cower. It was folly to pretend that she could outdo nature, especially in a place like this, or even the living trees of the Feywild could not escape destruction. But it was folly, too, to pretend she could ever go back to her castle and be happy as a princess for sale. Marisol felt sick at the thought of wasting her long life with some well-connected prince trapped by marble walls. Before her, Paloma sang of a dreamy, unbounded space between worlds. Marisol took her hand and followed her there. Every fairy tale holds a precarious balance between opposing forces, entrapment and freedom, vengeance and love, uncertainty and fearlessness. As storytellers well familiar with these struggles, we can't wait to see what new fairy tales we can create for ourselves. Thank you to Liesl Motzka and Nicole Penrod for your contributions to this episode and to Robin Tynan, Christine Nguyen, Abigail Burkett, and Ari Ryder for their performances. Featured music was by Kai Engel, David Hillowitz, and Eric Matias. To learn more about our pieces, artists, and readers, please visit our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. Our next episode, Gothic, will be released in late March. Get ready for dark secrets, unsettling families, and a good old-fashioned haunting. In the meantime, stay up to date with podcast news, submission calls, and our love for corny movie references at monstersoutofthecloset.tumblr.com and at pod underscore monsters on Twitter. 
If you're interested in participating in this show, we are currently closed for new submissions, but we are still accepting volunteer voice actors who can get started on our website's submit page. We will reopen submissions between April 1st and April 30th to fill our third season. One final update. We are adjusting our Patreon reward structure to help us continue to release content that we can be proud of. To this end, our Phantom of the Cinema reviews will sadly be going away, but they'll be replaced by our Behind the Screams commentaries now at the $4 level. In their place, now at the $2 level, you will be able to access exclusive sneak peeks for upcoming episodes, including text, excerpts, and audio clips. With this new reward, it's a great time to consider becoming a patron if you haven't yet, so be sure to check it out. Thanks to our supporting producers, Tara Rangan, Lindsay Holt, Sarah Lopez, and Lourdes Kaland, as well as all of our other patrons who support the show, and to you, listeners, who give this podcast a loving home. You are the Selkies beneath our waves. Until next time, Monsters out.